Well, are you ready for a quiz this morning? I like that. We're at the end of our series on the Psalms, and we've looked at several kinds, wisdom, Sabbath, praise. And I thought it would be a good idea to test what you've learned today. How about that? I'm going to read the first line of two Psalms, and you can't look at your phone, by the way, so put it away. And I want you to tell me what they are, okay? This is Psalm 42. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Sabbath? What about a psalm of praise? Not sure. Okay, let's read the next one, Psalm 63. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there's no water. What about Sabbath? Nah, it doesn't sound like that, does it? Does that sound like a psalm of praise to you? How many of you thought that these were psalms of wisdom. Let me see. Raise your hand. Uh-huh. Wrong answer. <laughs> We've got a different kind of psalm here. I tricked you. And um, let's take a look. I'll show you what I mean. You might have noticed that both writers reference a lack of water in their psalms. And what they're doing is they've set up a comparison. They're using poetic language to compare thirsting for water with desiring to be with God. I call these, they're definitely prayers, but they're prayers of longing and desire. And being prayers, they're very, very powerful when we pray them ourselves in our prayer time. Today, we want to look at what I think is one of the greatest of these prayers or these psalms of desire and longing, and that's Psalm 84. But before we start, how many of you know that we don't just read the scriptures for information? We know that, right? The scriptures are the, one of the main ways that you and I can encounter God. But God's word is also one of the main ways that you and I can experience transformation. And that's why it's vital that we have a regular habit of feeding on God's word. That's where we encounter him, and that's where he gets to transform us. Amen? All right, let me pray. Father, we welcome your presence here this morning. And we say, let your kingdom come. Come, Holy Spirit, Spirit of truth, and rest on us today. And Lord, we pray that you will break out in this place, in revival, in Jesus' name, amen. All right. Some of you might have in your Bible a note on Psalm 84 that says this was written by the sons of Korah. And these were Levites, you might think of priests, who served in the temple. That was their job. 
And naturally, any psalm written by the sons of Korah is going to be talking about God's presence. In fact, they reveal, their psalms reveal a deep passion and a hunger for God. And by the way, there are 12 psalms from the sons of Korah. Psalm 42 to 49, this one, Psalm 84, but also 85, 87, and Psalm 88. I guarantee you, if you pray these psalms, these prayers in your prayer time, you will start to have a hunger for the Lord. Okay, before we also start, I want to say this. You know that... uh, To understand the scriptures, sometimes it's easier if we can identify the parts. And that's especially true of the Psalms. And Psalm 84 has three parts to it, very simple. And as I read this first part, I want you to listen for the the writer's heart. I want you to listen for his desire for the Lord. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord Almighty! My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Even the sparrow has found a home, and the swallow a nest for herself where she may have her young, a place near your altar. O Lord Almighty, my King and my God. We've said that we have to read these Psalms on two levels, right? What it meant back then and what it means for us today under the new covenant. And certainly on one level, this writer is longing for the presence of God that he misses in the temple in Jerusalem. And it's pretty clear that he no longer has access to that temple. He was probably a Levitical priest in in exile someplace. So I want you to imagine him, all right? Let's imagine him sitting somewhere in a foreign country and he's maybe looking toward Jerusalem and he's remembering those days long ago when he served in the temple and he was right next to the presence of God. In his reverie, he imagines birds making their nests in the temple. And I think think that bothers him a little bit. It's like he's saying, you know, even the sparrows and the swallows, they get to have their home in your temple, near your presence. Why why am I cut off from it? It's kind of the idea that I get from that. This man is not where he wants to be. He wants to be with the Lord. And I should say, there are times in life, aren't there, when we are not where we want to be. And I can tell you that that is very, very painful. Many of us know the scripture by heart. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. But a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. When Kathy and I um, left Texas to come to Illinois, the year before that, we were sent to Indiana. And I have to say to you that I don't think I've ever experienced 
a more painful, more difficult year than that year before we came here. I, I guess you could say I was living in a dry and weary land where there was no water. Now, we were living with fantastic people, and we didn't have, it didn't cost us anything to live there, which is a good deal. But I had no function, I had no purpose in this community. I was just there. No job. I wasn't really doing ministry to speak of. I wasn't doing anything at all for a year. And that's hard. I don't know if you've ever experienced something like that, but that's where my dreams died. That's where my, my heart began to sink. I was still following the Lord, but I have to admit that I was falling into despair because I didn't see a future. I could not see any way forward. And, you know, we go through times that are so painful that all we can be sure of is that we're conscious. Everything else is stripped away. And I know some of you have experienced that. I remember during that time in Indiana, a friend called me and she said, Mike, some friends and I were talking and we think you're dying up there. And I remember saying, yeah, I think you're right. I feel like I'm dying. I don't know what to do. It was so bad for me that on Saturdays, to comfort myself, I would drive to Michigan to a pizza parlor, and I would order a deep dish pizza for myself and a drink, and I would watch the football games all afternoon. I just wanted to feel normal. I just wanted to feel like a little bit of my old life again. It's pretty tough. And some of you today, I'm sure, perhaps your hope has been deferred as well. Maybe some of you, your heart is, in, is sick right now. Maybe for more of you, your desires are unfulfilled. You want to be married, but you don't see any possibility. You're maybe in a job or you're living someplace and you know that you're made for better things. You just know it. Here's what you do. I want you to take that pain. I want you to take all your dreams and all your desires into your prayer time with the Lord and lay it all at the foot of the cross. And sometimes all we can do in our prayer time is just hurt before the Lord. But don't forget, there's a psalm for every season. And so when you're in that prayer time, don't forget Psalm 37, verse 4. Those of you with unfulfilled desires, delight yourself in the Lord. And he will give you the desires of your heart. That's what you pray during those times. And Psalm 84 shows us what delighting in the Lord looks, looks like. Look what he says. He says, my soul yearns, my heart, my flesh cry out for the living God. His whole being was craving 
to be in the presence of the Lord. You know, I've been a Christian for more than 48 years. And in my time, I've seen three different kinds of believers. There are those who believe in God, but don't follow him. And that used to be me. And then there are those who follow God and they work very, very hard for God. But they don't desire him. And that was me most of my Christian life. In fact, even when I was a pastor. Then there are those who are filled with the love of God. And so following God and desiring God is the easiest thing in the world. Which are you today? What is your level today? What is your level of desire for the Lord? And those of you in ministry, maybe you're a pastor, maybe you're a ministry leader, is working for God more important to you than just being in his presence, not doing anything, but just delighting in him? Those are good questions to ask. Of course, to the Jew, the temple represented a long history of encounters with the Lord. You might remember that God appeared in the beginning to Moses in a burning bush, and he was also present in the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. And when Solomon dedicated his temple, the presence of God came so powerfully, the priest couldn't perform their duties. There might have been one of the descendants of Korah in that meeting. You might remember what Moses said when he had a kind of an argument with God. He's going before God, and I think he asked the greatest question of, of the entire Bible. He says, what else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And God had already answered that question for him. He said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Friends, the presence of God was what made Israel Israel. It's what gave them their identity, nothing else but his real presence. This Levite was longing in this psalm for the very thing that gave Israel the identity that she had and his own identity as well. That's what he's longing for. And that's God's presence. How would we answer that question today? Lord, what distinguishes us as the church and your people? What makes us unique? What gives us our identity? What, how are we different from everyone else on the planet? And we're going to talk about that in a second. So as I read the next part, this is part two. I want you now to start paying attention to the three blessings that will come to those people who choose to dwell with the Lord. It says, blessed are those who dwell in your house. 
They are ever praising you. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, who have set their hearts on pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The autumn rains also cover it with pools. They go from strength to strength till each appears before God in Zion. Did you catch the three blessings? Number one, people who desire to dwell with the Lord are always praising God. They're in a state of worship much of the time. Number two, their strength, the strength they need to do the work God called them to do, that strength comes not from themselves, but from the Lord. And by the way, it says they go from strength to strength, which means as we dwell with God, you and I keep getting stronger and stronger and stronger every year. Third, they have the power to turn their world into a place of springs. We'll also talk about that in a second, but these are the blessings for those who dwell with God. So another question for you. Where do you dwell most of the time? What house do you dwell in? Two weeks ago, Mike showed us in Psalm 1 where not to dwell, didn't he? said, blessed is the one who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. In other words, we don't take our values, our opinions, our viewpoints, our worldviews from people who don't know the truth. But you know, we can dwell in places that are not necessarily bad. Do you dwell most of the time in the house of sports? What about social media? Do you dwell a lot of the time with video games? Not making a judgment there, but you know, we can, we can love some things, even good things, a little bit too much, can't we? Economists tell us that finite resources must be rationed. Time is a finite resource. How are you rationing your time? At the end of the day, how much time have you given to your smartphone? kind of quiet in here. Sorry about that. Back then, as I said, dwelling with God's, with dwelling in God's house meant being in the temple. Now, I want to show you the New Testament counterpart. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul takes the image of the temple and flips it around. He says, you know what? Now you are the temple. The temple is inside you individually and the temple is inside us corporately. We are the temple of God now. So I just asked you where you dwell, but now I'm asking another question. 
Does God dwell in you? How much does God dwell in you? In other words, how are you nourishing and feeding and strengthening the the presence of God in your temple? Have you ever thought of that? How are you feeding the Lord inside you? It means, as in John 15, it means abiding in Christ. Just like a branch has to be connected to a tree to bear fruit, you and I have to be connected. We have to abide in Jesus. He said, if a person remains in me and my words remain in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. God's presence in us and with us in these temples, this is what makes you and I unique among all the people on the planet Earth. It's we have his presence in us and in all of us and with us. You ever think about that? Now, the early church, I must say, they understood this. They understood they needed to feed and nourish God's presence in them, and they did that four ways. It says in Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. They were devoted to these things because they realized that God's word, worship, Communion and prayer are ways that we can encounter God and be transformed. And that's how they nourished the presence in that community. It works for individuals and it works for churches. And the great sign of this, the evidence of this, said Psalm 84, we will always be praising him. Our strength will be in him and we will transform the world. The writer says that those who dwell with God have set their hearts on pilgrimage. This is a little hard to understand, but let me try to explain. Three times a year, the Jews were required to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And they had to attend one of the three required festivals. Passover was in the spring, Feast of Weeks was in early summer, and the Feast of Tabernacles was in the fall. Set their hearts on pilgrimage means literally one who has the highways of pilgrimage, the journey inside his heart. He takes an external journey of a pilgrimage and he makes it an internal journey pilgrimage of our hearts. To set our hearts on pilgrimage means to sacrificially do whatever is necessary to dwell with God, to be with God. Now look at what happens when you and I do this. The Valley of Baca means the place of weeping. It may refer to the presence of balsam trees 
there that secrete a kind of a resin, and it makes it look like the trees are weeping. We might think of the Valley of Baca as, as those places of darkness and tears and pain and despair that you and I encounter as we pass through this world. Here's the good news. Now I want you to catch this. When we set our hearts on pilgrimage, when we desire God to dwell in his presence, we are ever praising him, our strength will be in him, and then when you and I pass through the valleys of Baca, the valleys of weeping in our world, because we carry the presence of God in these temples, we will transform the places of weeping into places of springs. Because we carry Jesus in us. Death becomes life when you and I are around and we're filled with his presence. Tears turn into springs of water. Despair turns to hope. Folks, this is the really awesome transformational power of anyone who chooses, who desires to dwell with God. As you know, springs and water are powerful symbols of what? Of life in the scriptures. In Jeremiah, um, God is called the spring of living water. Jesus himself said, whoever believes in him, streams of living water will flow from him. In talking about this pilgrimage and in connection with this idea of water, the writer mentions the autumn rains that will cover it with pools. This is a huge clue to what he's really getting at. We know now, because he mentioned that, which pilgrimage festival he was talking about. Autumn rains means fall. There's only one festival in the fall, and that's the Feast of Tabernacles. Let me tell you what that is. Tabernacles marks the end of the harvest year in general, but specifically, it's the end of the fruit harvest. So there are layers of symbolism here that the writer is wanting us to see. This is another way of saying that when we seek to dwell with God and we set our hearts on pilgrimage, we will naturally, naturally bear fruit. And that fruit will be the transformation of your world. The Valley of Baca will become a place of springs because we are passing through that. So I want to show you an amazing way that the Old and the New Testaments are connected. So he's talking about a pilgrimage, and he's talking about the Feast of Tabernacles. Now there's a beautiful continuity between Psalm 84 and John chapter 7. All right. When Jesus said, if anyone believes in him, streams of water will flow from him, Jesus was speaking in John 7 on the last and greatest day of the Feast of Tabernacles. This is the season of joy, of fruit-bearing, of the ingathering of fruit. 
And this is what he said on that last and greatest day. He said this, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. By this, he meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Is anyone thirsty? We opened this message today with two psalms that referenced thirsting for water. And now here's Jesus saying, if you're thirsty, come to me. I will give you the springs of living water of the Holy Spirit. You will never thirst again. But you know, being thirsty means that we do have to be empty. And sometimes when we take those internal journeys of the heart, God leads us to a place of wilderness or desert so that we can be emptied. For me, that emptying began before we got to Indiana. The first thing he told me is he wanted me to get rid of my high school hero identity. The football and track awards, the newspaper articles, the ribbons and the medals. I've been carrying this around for some dumb reason since high school. And he said to me, get rid of that. So I boxed him up and I threw him in the trash. And that's when Mike, the high school hero identity, died. And then he said, get rid of your books. I said, you got to be kidding me. I love my books. I had books from three different graduate schools. These books were in my heart. Maybe that was the problem. So what I did is I boxed up or gave away 17 boxes of books. And that's the day that Mike, the academic, Mike, the intellectual, Mike, the PhD, died. And then he told Kathy and I to quit our jobs, sell our home and all of our stuff, and move away from our family and our friends. And we went to Indiana, and I've already told you how fun that was. <laughs> but that's where Mike, the successful career man identity, died right there in Indiana. Toward the end of that time, a friend gave me a word from the Lord. She said, Mike, I have a question for you. Will you love my people? I knew I couldn't answer that honestly. I squirmed, I got evasive, and I said, well, you know, I've done a lot of work for God. She said, no, will you love my people? I knew that if I answered this truthfully, Mike was going to look really, really, really bad. But I couldn't lie, so I said, no, I don't love God's people. I knew that I was incapable of loving God's people. 
we were sitting in a restaurant at a small table, and at that moment, the moment I said that, the Spirit of God hit us. Tears came to my eyes, and I heard, sort of heard the Lord say to me, Mike, right answer. It's like he was saying, you don't have that kind of love, son. That kind of love, I have to give that to you. But I couldn't give it to you as long as you thought you were sufficient in yourself. As long as you were full of something else. And that's when I realized that I just passed the test. I was incapable of loving the way God was wanting me to love his people. He had to empty me before I could see that. Let me put it this way. Failing the love test, I passed the Lord's test. He said, my son, your inadequacy is your chief qualification. I got that from one of my books. Until you and I, Mike, agree that you don't have that kind of love, I can't fill you. Now, I'm not talking about the filling of the Holy Spirit. You don't need to be empty for that. I'm talking about, for me, he had to empty me so that I would be filled with his love. What I'm trying to say, and I'll end here, the valleys of Bacah, I found, were in my heart, my own heart. And folks, unless we confront the weeping and the pain and the darkness in our hearts, we might be stuck for a while. Our pilgrimage is a sacrificial life. What you signed up for was a life of sacrifice. But sacrifice is absolutely necessary for breakthrough. All right, well, there's more to this psalm, but I'm already over my time. So I didn't ration my time very well this morning. So let me just bless you, and then let's go into worship. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for your amazing love. Lord, you want all of us to be filled with that love. And Lord, we just say, let it be so. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.